Hey, folks, welcome to the Encuentros Latinx podcast, where we explore stories of spirituality, identity, and culture from Latinx perspectives. My name is Taylor Amaj. I'm an author and editor, and I'm Puerto Rican. This podcast is a project of Encuentros Latinx, an LGBTQ plus ministry in the United Church of Christ. General Synod is in just a few days, and Encuentros Latinx has not one, but two workshops you can attend. The first is When Privilege Enters the Room, led by me and Rina Ramos, who you may remember from episode 12. We'll be going through some of the content in our Racism Toolkit, so participants can begin to enter conversations around racism from Latinx perspectives. This will also show participants how they can use our toolkits in their own congregations. So the live session of that workshop is July 7th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And while you'll be able to watch it on demand in the super special General Synod workshop portal, please come to the live session so we have an audience. The second Encuentros Latinx workshop is Decolonizing Faith, led by Marilyn Pagan-Banks and Lisbeth Melendez-Rivera. The workshop summary is, many people speak of decolonizing the church, but fail to speak of the overall breadth of its effects in modern society. Many practice indigenous spirituality as part and parcel of their Christian rituals, yet lack an understanding of the ritual origins. This workshop aims to address some of these questions in the context of Latinidad. Presenters and participants will explore indigenous spirituality and its current role in our congregations and practices, and aim to understand how we can hear a God that still speaks to us all, and how this voice calls us to address racialized and other underrepresented groups within the UCC. The live session for this workshop will be July 8th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So again, please come to the live session if you can make it out. I love letting y'all know about books and other stories with Latinx characters. So I want to take just a little minute to plug a Latinx fantasy show that I have totally fallen in love with. If you're a fan of a good cartoon, you have got to watch The Owl House. Our main girl, Luz Noceda, is just the sweetest little nerdy bean you ever did meet. And she gets transported from the human world to this magical world where she learns to become a witch. She's Dominican and she's bi, both of which we love to see here on the podcast. The Dominican part isn't a major element in the show since Luz is actually in this fantasy world for the entire story. But we do see her speak Spanish from time to time, especially since she is separated from her mom, who is still in the human world. And so she sends her mom messages and various things like that. Season two is currently airing. So if you have access to Disney Channel in any way, shape or form, give this one a watch. It is quite a treat. In this episode of the podcast, one of the books mentioned is Aftershocks of Disaster, Puerto Rico Before and After the Storm, edited by Yarimar Bonilla and Marisol Lebron. Marilyn Pagan-Banks, who you may remember from episode three and who is also doing a synod workshop that I mentioned before, gifted me my copy of this book 
And it's a really excellent anthology for understanding the generations-long context of exploitation of Puerto Rico, um, especially with its relationship with the United States and how Hurricane Maria specifically exacerbated all of those problems. I definitely recommend it if you are looking for a deeper understanding of where Puerto Rico finds itself today and what some people are trying to do to not only rebuild and recover the island, but to shape a different future for it. Now, at last, on to my guest for today, Christina Lizardi Hajbi. We have such a great conversation about biracial and biethnic experience. She talks about her work with the Colectivo de UCC Latinx Ministries, which is the big umbrella that collects all of the different Latinx UCC ministries going on throughout the denomination. And toward the end of our conversation, Christina and I grapple with this question of what does it mean for UCC churches to be inclusive of Latinx people? It's a nice long episode for you all this month. So let's get right into this encuentro. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. What country or countries do you and your family come from? So that is a, a complex question. So Love it. Let's get I, into it. <laughs> right. I am biracial. Um, my father is Puerto Rican and my mother is Italian. And so um, I am bicultural, biracial. Uh, that gets complexified because I was raised in Southern Colorado, Northern New Mexico, which is primarily Mexican American. And so in some ways, I, there are three cultures with which I identify and which I was raised in. So uh, it, it's interesting to be in spaces that are Latinx or Latinx because I have sort of multiple identities and also that sense of uh, which is, mm -hmm. you know, neither here, neither there, neither mm -hmm. anywhere. So mm -hmm. I, I had a very interesting gro growing up as a result of that. So, Well, with all of that tapestry, what is a good memory that you have about, it can really be about any of the three cultures or all of the three cultures together? Like, what is something that is good that stands out for you? Yeah, so um, so many memories. So just just to backtrack a little bit, my parents uh, were born and raised in New York, and my dad grew up in the Bronx. My grandparents uh, were born in Puerto Rico. Um, mm -hmm. uh, my dad's parents were born there and came to New York um, early 1930s, I believe, mm -hmm. and. Uh, had children, you know, had a family. And in those days, it was so important to become Americanized, right? Mm -hmm. So in many ways, giving up uh, one's language, even though Spanish was spoken in the home. My dad 
did not teach Spanish to us as mm-hmm. children. And in the same way, my mother, who was the child of uh, first generation Italian immigrants, um, my mother knew Italian, my dad knew Spanish, but they did not teach that language to their children, mm. to my brother and I. And so um, we do have cultural elements, but the language is not one of those. And that's a huge loss because, um, you know, language, as you know, is a huge point of contention in Latinx cultures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, are we talking about Spanish? Are we talking about Portuguese? Are we, you know, talking about a, a Spanglish version of, of, <laughs> of English and Spanish mixed? And so I'll say that language is not... Um, a part of my memory growing up. But what I will say is a part of my memory is, is the food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so having a mixture of both Italian and Puerto Rican um, foods growing up was really important for me. So my dad would, on special occasions, make fried platanos, mm-hmm. you know, plantains, right? Mm-hmm. Which is just mm-hmm. a huge staple of Puerto Rican food and culture. It's part of mofongo. And yep. and so that is such a part of who I am, you know, mm-hmm. at, at my core. And it's such a happy memory for me growing up. The other thing was my dad used to make this incredible black beans and rice. Mm-hmm. And he made it only the way that he could and that my grandmother taught him to. And unfortunately, both of my parents are now deceased. Mm -hmm. And so there's times where I try to replicate the food that he made and I can't and Mm -hmm. trying to remember how, so how did he make black beans and rice? How did he do that? Um, So, so plantains, platanos is the closest Mm -hmm. thing that I have to those fond memories of my 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 father, especially in the the Puerto Rican part of me growing up mm-hmm. in my family, um, you know, usually families are really large in Latinx culture. My family was was not large. We were small and generationally we didn't live very long. And mm-hmm. so I never met my grandparents Mm. Um, when I was born, my parents were in almost into their forties when they had me in my forties, when they had my, my younger brother. And so that generational piece often gets lost. And so I work really hard to, to keep in mind my ancestors and Mm -hmm. the traditions and the, who they were that it does get passed down to who Mm -hmm. I am and makes me who I am because that generational tie has not been as strong in my family. And, and, you know, my father being deceased when I was 18, I only had 18 years Mm -hmm. uh, with him to learn those traditions and him being gone over 20 years now has been, has been uh, a a piece of my identity that I've longed for Mm -hmm. um, to connect with and have done so in different ways. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't even know if that, if I answered your question, but just sort of going into that sharing. You, yeah, that's definitely a fantastic answer to the question. It just gave me so much to think about. And one of those things is I, I thought it was so interesting how you talked about making, trying to make food the way that your parents did, because even though like my, um, my Boricua side comes from my mom and I learned how to cook from her and due to personal reasons, uh, I, my diet now, the way I eat is very specialized and, and particular, uh, plantains are still part of it though. 
so that's nice. But um, th- like the rice, the, the beans are not. Um, but I still know how to make this food. And I remember when I, I got really good at making it the way that I make it, but it doesn't taste like how my mom made it. And it doesn't mm. taste like how my abuela made it. And it's not saying that the way that I made it was bad. It wasn't because it was really good. I got really good at making it. And my mom's was really good. And abuela's was really good. But all three of our rice and bean dishes were still a little bit different. And it, it's exactly what you said. Each of us in the generations, we made it only the way that we could make it. Like I just could not, and I can't even, I couldn't even explain what it is about what my mom does when she cooks the same dish versus what I do, because we use the same ingredients and we like, I mean, maybe, maybe there's, you know, some differences there, but it's just like, there's nothing tangible that I can point to, to say, oh, well, Abuela did, had this ingredient. And I mean, maybe sometimes she did, but sometimes it is this sort of like, you don't know what it is. And, and it, so I just, I just thought that was really, um, the way that you worded that experience. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely. And I guess at the end of the day, it's, it's being okay with that, right? Mm -hmm. Because we are, are, we are sort of the, the individuals and the people who carry forward those generations, but we add a piece of ourselves to it and we make it our own. Mm -hmm. And so it's okay that it's not exactly like how, you know, our abuelas or our our parents used Mm -hmm. to make it, but that it is our own. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I, I often think my dad had a very specific pot that he would cook rice in mm-hmm. and I don't have that pot. And I mm, wonder, yep. you know, it's, it's part of the, the container. I don't have the contain the actual container mm-hmm. that he cooked that in. And that's why it's different. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, just, just thinking about that. And we each have our own experiences, our own containers, if you will, that we bring to any sort of creation that we make. And Mm -hmm. that, and that includes the food of the food of our people. And Mm -hmm. ironically enough, my spouse, he's the one who does most of the cooking in our, in our family now. And so he's Moroccan, he's from Mm -hmm. North Africa, he's Muslim, and he Mm -hmm. makes rice a very different way. And so I've learned Mm -hmm. how to make how to eat and I love the rice that he makes. And Mm -hmm. just so all of our experiences and our new relationships that we bring to things, um, get played out and carried forward in the the food, in the expressions that we have of our cultures. Mm-hmm. I, I love the image of the container. And like, just when you said that, I just, my brain just kept going with that because I, I still have the pot that my mother cooked in and I mm. learned to cook in that pot. And even, even in that pot though, my rice still tasted different. <laughs> So, so, you know, it's, it's just, it's a constant mystery. And there's, there's a theological metaphor in that, that (laughs) it's just coming, coming to my brain. I mean, I'm not going to tease it out. I'm going to stutter too much because it's not a well-formed thought, but just, you can go in so many directions with that. Um, And I I also, you know, you you talked about language too, um, Mm. and not, having language and not being taught language. That was my experience as well, more or less. I had a nanny when I was from a baby to almost two years old who was from, I'm I'm forgetting where she's from, but uh, her name was Rosalda and she didn't, didn't speak English. She took care of me all day long while my parents were at work. So 
and my parents tell me this, they're like, yeah, when you first started learning to talk, your first words were Spanish. But um. then when we, when I was two, we moved cause I, I was, uh, we were in Chicago and you know, we were among a lot of other Boricuas cause my mom, um, she left Puerto Rico when she was 18 and she stayed with this, with this family who are cousins because somebody married somebody else. Like, you know how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so she, she lived with these people. And so, you know, we were, everybody was there. And so had we stayed there, had I grown up in Chicago, I probably would have been fully bilingual. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, but we moved to an area that, didn't certainly not back then and really doesn't now though it's changing uh, just not a large latinx population so yeah. i definitely have an experience of being assimilated and you know yeah it's it's interesting because i learned the spanish that i learned the 5 years of spanish that i took was through public school and yeah. public school spanish doesn't teach you how to understand puerto ricans that's right. <laughs> <laughs> like I can, I That's still right. could not communicate with my family. Like I, I took, by the time I had taken Spanish too, I was in Spanish too. And I would still go to Puerto Rico because we would go there for family vacations and I couldn't say things right. And nobody, even if I yeah. did, like I was so ashamed and so scared of even trying to, because I was not comfortable. I sounded so awkward and then nobody could understand me. And they just looked at me weird. And I was just, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to deal with my family looking at me. Like I, you know, came out of the planet Jupiter. Like I just right, can't, right. you know, um, and there's, right. and I, and I think yeah. a lot, a lot of us in the diaspora yes. have this deep shame, this level yes. of family rejection, whether, whether it's intentional on their part or, or just a matter of like, I can't understand you. Like I yeah. didn't know my abuela and abuelo super well because there was a freaking language barrier. Right. Like I couldn't, right. I couldn't understand. I, I could barely communicate with them. And right. on the one hand, that's like, that was my experience. So it didn't, it doesn't seem, or it didn't seem to me that weird. But then when I really think about it, like most other people don't have, I, I mean, I'm making a generalization right. for, for a second, but, but I just, it's, it's hit me how, odd or how outstanding that particular experience is like oh yeah there are people who never have a language barrier at all with any members of their family like that's yes. never even a thing that anybody ever has to think about and so when I think about that other people don't yes. have that experience I'm like then what I went through was or what I experienced there is kind of something to deal with you know right right and and you think about um i mean especially for latinx especially you know second third generation mm -hmm. you know the the more that we become assimilated the more uh, we are disconnected and i love that you use the word diaspora um because i was thinking the same thing it's 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 a product of diaspora of colonization um and my parents, you know, seeking to assimilate even away from their parents, mm -hmm. you know, and then my parents, um, you know, they were born in the forties. They, 
um, you know, grew up and, and, you know, were in, in their twenties, in the sixties, mm-hmm. became hippies, mm-hmm. you know, big into the hippie movement. And then they move away from their family, away from their extended family. Um, the majority of their parents had died. Only one, only my maternal grandmother was left and she pretty much only spoke Italian and moved across the country to Southern Colorado, where there happened to be a hippie commune and several hippie communities at the time. So they moved here, you know, had a family, built a life, and to be disconnected from your familia, those who can share a language with you, who can share a culture, is a unique kind of experience that I don't um, know if many others experience, uh, especially those who are who are Euro-American solely and, mm-hmm. you know, English is, is the language, but being cut off from that has a, uh, a deep effect on oneself and me, you know, growing up in a, a Mexican-American part of the country, you know, when I was growing up, I, I learned Spanish words, but I learned them from Chicanos, mm-hmm. Mexicanos, and, and that they have different meanings, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wasn't, Oh, I, and again, I was never quite, me- you know, I wasn't Mexican, but I didn't certainly look like a Weta, you know, Weta, which is a term, mm-hmm. you know, someone who has blonde hair, fair skin, you know, mm-hmm. um, blue eyes, you know, I wasn't a Weta, but we called people who were, who were white, you know, white, white women who are whiter. We use that word with them and mm-hmm. Weta, Weta. Um, and I, you know, began to dress like a chola, you know, more assimilated into Chicana, Mexicana culture, because those were my friends. Mm -hmm. That's the culture I grew up in. And so even figuring out who I was as a teenager and my identity and all of those things just get so conflated because I didn't have Puerto Rican family members around me. Right. Mm -hmm. I just didn't. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, I had my Italian mother who taught me Italian culture, how to cook Italian food. I had my dad who taught me a little bit about Puerto Rican culture, but certainly not the language. And Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother, who was Italian, um, lived with us till she passed away, was nine years old. My mother spoke Italian to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she spoke Italian to my mother, but mm-hmm. my grandmother only knew a few words in English. So even mm-hmm. growing up in a household with her, mm-hmm. I couldn't communicate with her. I communicated right. simple words. She watched mm-hmm. me. She took care of me. Mm-hmm. She played with me, but I didn't have the language. And my mm-hmm. mom certainly wasn't going to teach me the language because that was a, that was seen as a detriment mm-hmm. in her generation to mm-hmm. have someone her children learn a different language. And Mm -hmm. ironically enough, I mean, Puerto Ricans are, of course, U.S. citizens, right? The colonial legacy that we carry, we're still a colony Mm -hmm. as an island of the Mm -hmm. United States. But it was my Italian grandparents who paid someone to take the citizenship test for them because they didn't speak English well enough. And Mm -hmm. so they are became citizens as a result of paying someone else to do it because they certainly couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are sort of the, the tricksters and the illegitimate parts of my family of being a mm-hmm. part of this country, mm-hmm. um, which is another whole fascinating side of that. Right. Yeah, so yeah. how do you, um, you know, who, and, and citizenship of course is a huge issue in the Latinx community, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. who's citizen is not undocumented. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my doctoral dissertation on, um, undocumented college students and, and, um, 
the ways that colleges and staff and faculty at at colleges and universities um, sort of go around the law and under the law mm-hmm. to provide support to students that are undocumented. And so mm-hmm. um, citizenship, of course, is a huge issue. So yeah, yeah. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love how you talked about the simple communications that you had with your grandmother because because even with what I said before about the language barrier and the lack of communication and not having like a really strong relationship I don't want that to come across as like a like saying abuela didn't love me because that because that's right. not true and like your you know your grandma loved you my grandma loved me because I mean, the, the few Spanish words that I could understand when we rolled up to Abuela's house after coming from the airport and the big smile on her face and the, the string of Spanish as, as I got the besitos on my cheeks, like I, I couldn't always understand what she said, but she always had food cooked for us when we were coming and just all, all of these non-language ways that she still showed that that she loved me and you calling me yeah. Nana, you know, like the, I, I understood some of the like little pet names, but a lot of times not, not much else. And she, and when I, toward the end of her life, when my Spanish was getting better, I did get to actually tell her about like what I did for work in Spanish. I visit, we visited her at the nice. nursing home she was staying at by that point. And there were other things where we took her places and I, I was starting to understand more some things that she said. And she was funny sometimes. She was, yeah, she was absolutely hilarious. She would walk around her house with like three Q-tips in each ear after a shower. Um, she loved yeah. going to the casino and my dad, who, you know, doesn't know hardly any Spanish, she and him just got along like so, so well. And they just cracked each other up and he took her to the casino and he, he would just like yeah. look at her. He would just look at her and be like, and be like casino. And she'd be, she would just light up and it was the funniest thing. So, That's you know, awesome. it, it sounds like a sad story where you're a kid and you're growing up in a, in a family and you have a language barrier with your other family members because that... Cause then you're like, you know, if that's not your experience, then you think, oh, that's so tragic. You didn't know your family member at all. You had absolutely like no connection with them. And there's an element of that that's kind of true, but there are these other ways that you still have connection even outside of the language. So absolutely. And really, I mean, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, love language, right? It's mm-hmm. it's the language of love that that goes beyond words, and I, and you know, for those of us who are you know second, third generation, that shame it, that we are made to feel, and and it's really being made to feel by others, right? Mm-hmm. And and there are ways that we within our own community, others, those who don't speak Spanish, don't mm-hmm. you know, those who speak a little bit and those who are, are, you know, if you're not born on the island versus yep. those who are, there's all yeah. of those divisions that get created. And I think um, ultimately, you know, it's, it's replicating the colonizers, you know, constructions of mm-hmm. who we are and, and we need to embrace the fullness of who we are. And, and it's wonderful that you have those stories of your abuela and because the stories are what carry us 
forward. It, mm-hmm. it, they are a part of who we are and they shape who we are and who we become and even, you know, future generations beyond ourselves. If we have those, they, they mm-hmm. shape those so incredibly. And, you know, it, with both of my, my mother died about four years ago and, you know, my dad died over 20 years ago and, and, taking on a new role. I've done a lot of work on family systems theory or emotional systems theory. And, you know, there's always different roles that we in our family that we play in our families, our families of origin. And my mother was the center, right? She was Mm -hmm. the glue that held everyone together. My brother, myself, my, my stepdad, everyone around us, she held together. And when she passed away, that role came to me. Hmm. And so then I became uh, the madre, right? The, the mm-hmm. mother of the family. And so mm-hmm. I, and, and it wasn't by anyone saying, oh, you are now this role, right? Mm-hmm. But then I became, you know, the mother, the center point. And, and generationally, those, it, we have those roles in our family. You know, so I became the one who holds the stories, the one who holds the history from my grandparents, from my parents down to me mm-hmm. and also holds the responsibility. Like I take, mm-hmm. I, I feel like the caretaker of a lot of people. And for, mm-hmm. you know, the first couple of years, I really resisted that role. I'm like, I don't want that role. Don't put that on me. <laughs> right. um, and then I, and I'm too young for this role also. And then I learned to embrace that role, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the roles that, that we are you know, created for the roles that we take on and the roles that we inhabit, I think are, are really important for familia, right? No matter what kind of familia we have, like I said, my family is pretty small. I'm disconnected from my cousins. Again, they all grew up in back East. They all, you know, have different sort of cultures, not just, not just, um, ethnically or racially, you know, their experiences are different, but religiously too, which I can mm-hmm. talk about it a little bit too, but they're yeah. all Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're, or they became more evangelical or more conservative Protestant. Mm-hmm. And so all of those sort of differences, you know, the roles we play are so huge, even if our families are small, even if our families are disconnected and we're in like multiple diasporas. So I'm a diaspora from my New Yorkian. Mm-hmm. family, you know, to like this little pocket of people in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, it, so yeah, it's just fascinating how our families are, are connected, but yet also products of a diaspora. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that leads perfectly into exploring your connection specifically with this term Latinx or Latine, because I, I make space on this podcast for people to not claim that terminology because it is fraught for a lot of reasons. And I, and I think too, that the existence of Latinx, Latina as terms carries a lot of weight. Um, And so I like to try to treat it as fully as possible with different people coming on and, and sharing their, how they experience that term. So what, what is your experience with that terminology? Yeah, I, I've come to embrace it. I, I, and I embrace it because of its, for me, more inclusive nature, right? The X is so important. Um, as an umbrella term, you know, Latinx, um, you know, we know that, that that is a term that 
includes so many different cultures and languages and groups of people, but but the X is really important or the E is really important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it includes, it is more inclusive of everyone. And it's, it is a, I think, queering of the language itself, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and moving beyond gender binary, which I totally embrace completely. And at the end of the day, I identify myself as a biracial Latina. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and I say biracial so that people understand, you know, I, I am Puerto Rican and I'm something else. I'm Puerto Mm -hmm. Rican and I'm Italian. I think that's hard sometimes though, because I see myself as fully Puerto Rican Mm -hmm. and fully Italian. Mm -hmm. And because of that, and and again, I think it's colonialism and, you know, the, the legacy of colonization where we have to sort of you know, name our identities and and prove, well, I'm just as much this as you are, or I'm half Mm -hmm. this, or I'm a quarter this. And and it gets to be problematic when we place those labels on ourselves as as a people. Mm -hmm. Um, But I say biracial Latina, because I feel like that's the truest uh, sense of my own identity. Uh, But as as a broad term, Latinx, Mm -hmm. or Latinx, or Latine, um, it really does embody sort of the fullest expression of who we are as Latine people, mm-hmm. uh, peoples, and including beyond gender. Um, it, I do a lot of um, teaching of post-colonial and decolonial theory and theology in mm-hmm. my work. And um, these sorts of gender binaries weren't necessarily a part of Taino culture Mm -hmm. or uh, uh, cultures that were indigenous to uh, Latin America. And Mm -hmm. so those gender binaries were placed on uh, by conquistadors, by, you know, European cultures as the construction and the colonial construction of gender. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, Latinx in some ways is an indigenization of uh, the conquistador gender binary that we have today. So I fully embrace it. And mm-hmm. I know that not everybody does, but mm-hmm. I, I fully embrace that. Yeah, I think in um, Alan Lopez's article, there's an article that they wrote called, and it's been mentioned on this podcast several times, mm-hmm. the X in Latinx is a wound, not a trend. And I, I think they, you know, they talk about the exact roots of it, just just as you just said. So, and and I also think too, because some, this has been recently on, on my mind that just the difference between Latinx, Latina as an experience, because also those words generally are used most in a U.S. context. Mm -hmm. When, when we start actually talking about people who still live in Latin America, folks are identifying by their country that they're from, you know, more, more so than not. And so that just, that makes me think about differences to the, how the diaspora is a, it it is a cutoff experience, but it's also becoming its own thing and it's, it's been its own thing, but then also to, to be sure because of that, to then make sure there's a distinction between diaspora experiences and Latin American experiences, because some, sometimes I've seen people conflate 
Latinx, Latina and Latin American as if it's all the same thing. And it's like, well, when you're when you're talking about people who say like I'm Latin American, many of those people, I think, are maybe they're very recent immigrants or they're still there. And and I think that is a really important distinction to make, because when in diaspora, depending on how many years or generations removed we might be. Some of us have never been back to the countries that right. our families come from. I've I was very fortunate to grow up with with parents. My parents were very intentional about taking me to Puerto Rico every summer when I was yeah. a small child. That became every other summer as I got older, but that that was what vacation was. It was going to Puerto Rico to see the family. And it was always kind of weird because sometimes I would be like, oh yeah, I'm going to, to Puerto Rico this summer. And sometimes people like white people would, would react and be like, oh, fancy vacation. And I'm like, I'm seeing my grandparents. <laughs> like right. it just, which gets into this whole thing about how non-Latinx people, white people, the way that they view Puerto Rico, like if yeah. like Puerto Rico is either an afterthought or it's just the place you go to vacation. Right. Because that is always, even today, if I say, and people don't know, if I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm going, I'm going to Puerto Rico. They're like, oh, fancy beach vacation. Look at that. And like, maybe that's part of it. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe there is, you know, some days where we, yes, we go to the, to the beach or, or whatever, but it, it's just this, you can tell from their responses that there is this idea of Puerto Rico in the white imagination that it's the oh, vacation yeah. destination. And with what is happening now, the power system there, I think was just uh, privatized and all these, you know, all these things. And it's like, yeah, sure. Tell me, yeah, go ahead and have that reaction about how I'm going on a fancy vacation. It's just, <laughs> right. it's just a little right. bit, it hits me a little bit weird. Um, it's strange. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's certainly a fetishizing, yeah, of, mm -hmm. of what Puerto Rico is and, and it's, again, the huge legacy of colonization that is continuing to today. I mean, I mean, the, the, when I, the only, the one and only time that I have been to Puerto Rico was two years ago. And I went, um, for a work trip, we were doing a reaccreditation visit for a seminary, um, mm -hmm. in, down in Puerto Rico and, um, was able to spend time there, travel, see the whole Island and mm -hmm. just my own sense of connection um, and not, and, and knowing, you know, the towns where my family, where my grandparents came from and where mm -hmm. my ancestors are, were, and then also where I still have like third and fourth cousins that mm -hmm. live there, you know, and they're sort of in the mountains in the middle of, in the yep. middle of Puerto Rico. And, mm -hmm. um, it just, just going there and seeing those places for me, I mean, it's so, so not <laughs> a vacation or, you know, mm -hmm. a, I mean, for me, it was just such a deep connection that I, that I felt to the place that I had, you know, been disconnected from for mm -hmm. so long. And, and how many of us who are in the diaspora have never been to those places before, or have mm -hmm. never even been to, you know, where our parents or our grandparents grew mm -hmm. up and, and had and live their lives is, is difficult. And I, it's important, you know, I appreciate that you've distinguished between those who grew up in Latin America, in particular countries, and then come mm -hmm. to the United States. It's mm -hmm. such a different experience is. that one has than living and being in this diaspora. And mm -hmm. I, I had an occasion to be a part of a 
uh, professional year-long community of Latinx early career religion and theology scholars. And we came from everywhere and we had the most diverse experiences that you can imagine. And people who have only been in this country for the last few years, who grew up in different countries, uh, people like myself who have been, who are, you know, now third generation diaspora, and we all come together and the the tent is wide, right? The mm-hmm. tent is wide and broad and the more inclusive that we can be as Latinx, Latine, Latinos, mm-hmm. um, I, I think the more we can serve as a model for decolonizing um, and what decolonization has brought to all of our peoples in very different ways. Mm-hmm. But, but what better model of that than to come together and, and not again, use the measures that, uh, that the colonizer has done uh, mm-hmm. and and used for us for so many years, and I know mm-hmm. each, you know, Native Americans, um, American Indians have those sorts of struggles as well. African Americans, you know, and it depends on phenotype too. Like, am I mm-hmm. more fair skinned? You know, mm-hmm. what about Afro Latinos? And mm-hmm. and you know, there's always those kinds of comparisons too, not just by language, but by how the color of our skin is. Mm-hmm. And there are those Latinos who um, my grandmother was very fair. She was a redhead. Um, you know, she definitely has Spanish influence. And so mm-hmm. my dad, you know, had dark hair, but when he grew a beard, his beard was dark red. And my brother mm-hmm. has the same thing. His beard is dark red with that, mm-hmm. that Spanish influence, even though, you know, we have dark hair and dark mm-hmm. eyes, you know, mm-hmm. we, we have that Spanish influence in our light skin. And so the ways that we, again, categorize each other based on those racial constructions and markers of the colonizers has been has served us not well for far Mm -hmm. too long and so how do we acknowledge who we are and acknowledge that you know I am light-skinned I am this but yet Mm -hmm. you know embrace one another as uh, Latinx people is Mm -hmm. really critical for our ongoing survival yeah absolutely and you know I'm so glad you brought this up because that is something that I've dealt with too. I mean, because I am so assimilated, um, everything, if I didn't declare that I'm Boricua and Latina, a lot of people wouldn't know. And I would, and I know that I tend to walk through this world. Most of the time I'm perceived as white. However, maybe I'm now starting to think that maybe that happens less than I think it does. And not, not saying that it doesn't happen, but I I used to have this concept that like literally everybody sees me as white. But as I've talked about this to more and more people, people have been like, well, no, I don't know. Like I, I I have, I have a mixed experience with that. And, and so that is, but all of that being said, you know, it can be, it can be a really painful thing to have your very specific identity like internally and then to be in a situation where you are read or you become the thing that is simply your phenotype yes and and I think so for but at the same time it can be very useful to use those broad categories to talk about structural and and systemic ideas so one thing that I have 
been working with internally a phrase that um, may, may be useful to others. And I think I've mentioned it before on the podcast. I will say like internally, uh, Latina with white privilege. Uh-huh. That And that phrase, it's it's very specific. This this is yes. not talking about people who are are fourth generation Irish American and want to and want to say I'm Irish with white privilege. Like this is not this is not what I'm talking about. Yes, um, th- this is a specifically biracial, bicultural uh, phrase that might be useful to those of us who are very white passing. Yes. Um, in order to do internal decolonization work, because in a lot of my experience, I felt that I, due to this shame of these certain litmus tests of not being Puerto Rican enough, right. I stopped saying that I was Puerto Rican. Mm. I started saying things like, well, technically I'm Puerto Rican, but you know, my skin is white and I don't speak Spanish. So therefore, mm. like I, I yes. invalidated myself. I started yeah. invalidating myself before anybody else could. Yes. And uh, that was a lot of damage that I did to myself. And so this this phrase now, Latina with white privilege, what it's doing for me is it is putting the piece of identity that was suppressed. It's putting yes. that first. And, and it's not to deny white, whiteness or white privilege either like that that's not that's not what it's about in fact i think in order to even get to a place of claiming that phrase you have to do a lot of internal anti-racism work in in yourself to even begin to get there when you think about what it is that creates latinx latinos as a people yeah that when you like that wouldn't exist if not for the brutal history of the slave trade and european colonization of latin america and so that's a, a phrase that I like to offer. Um, yes, to, to I love people. That. Yeah, yeah. If you know, if that is a way that you experience the world, and if that if that is a phrase that internally begins to uh, unlock things for you, mm-hmm. and and to make things that were previously not fed uh, more fed, then that is absolutely something that. Uh, that I think, you know, other biracial folks can absolutely adopt it if they want to. But at the same time, yeah. I'm, like, I'm not going to go on to the internet. And if somebody is talking about, well, you know, white Latinos really need to understand that they're the ones that are in the media. Like, I'm not going to go into that blog post or whoever it is that's saying that and be like, right. um, actually, it, the term is Latinx with white privilege, like, because that's right, not what that's right. for. That's not what that's for either, you know? So, right. Uh, so yeah, I just, I, I, love I, I appreciate, that. yeah, I appreciate um, bringing up the the aspect of having this history, but also having having privilege in the way that we navigate the world. And so then it's like, you know, if I if I didn't declare my my Latinidad, then it's like letting the assimilation win, and it's like letting yes. white supremacy win. And so that's another reason why I am just more, you know, declarative a- about it and. And yeah. releasing that shame of not feeling enough. And that's what a lot of the, this podcast is for and what, what a lot of this work is for, too, because I think there are a lot of people in our situation, you know, who feel like they don't have enough to claim it. 
you know? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I, I love that phrasing and I, and acknowledging the white privilege that comes with being lighter skin or being, you know, bicultural, biracial and mm-hmm. is, is critical. And, um, you know, and it doesn't mean that we did not, and we do not continue to have experiences um, that subjugate us, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my whole life, I think having others question um, my Latinidad, either on, you know, people who are white to say, well, what are you really? Because you, you don't seem quite white enough, mm-hmm. right? You're not white. And then having, you know, uh, Latinx people say, well, you're not Puerto Rican enough. You're not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Latinx enough. And, and having that, again, not feeling here nor there um, can really mess with you. Right. And mm-hmm. so to, to have that identity Latina with white privilege, yes, this is who I am. This is, this is how I show up in the world. And these are the commitments that I hold because I recognize mm-hmm. that that's, that I hold that privilege. Um, and at the same time, the microaggressions still come mm-hmm. at me. Right. So the microaggressions like, well, you speak so well for, you know, being a uh, Latina, right. You, mm. you, oh, and meaning that I speak English, right. Or right, that I speak English right. without an accent or, right. you know, those sorts of things. And I'm very quick to say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, mm. and, and what, and so then to call them on that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and having people say, well, what are you really, or what, you know, or you don't seem, you don't seem Latina to me. So, mm-hmm. you know, and then oh that, gosh, again, that one, <laughs> right. And then yeah. negates, and, and then what that does to our own psychological and negate of our own identities is really tough. And so, you know, claiming that is, is a piece of our, um, you know, being who we truly are. And then to have, um, and, and I have some very, you know, the history, for example, of the, of the Colectivo in the United Church of Christ, it mm-hmm. is what it is now because of so much work that, that, uh, Latinx people did in the United Church of Christ to make it fully inclusive, but it was not always that way. And I remember mm-hmm. early on as, as a young adult, um, not being fully welcomed into mm-hmm. the Council for Hispanic Ministries. That's what it um, used to be called. And mm-hmm. because I didn't speak Spanish fully mm-hmm. because, you know, and I, and I remember just trying to continue to to push up against that, to say, no, this is who I am. This is who I am. And finally, I think it was, it was 2017, um, no, or 2000, I think it was 2017 or 2019 general mm-hmm. synod when we gathered, I think it was 2017 when we mm-hmm. gathered, um, you know, all of the Latinx people together and, um, we were having the dinner together that we usually have. And, someone, it was uh, Reverend Linda Hanamio, she she made a public, um, and it was Ellie, Ellie Mendez Angulo as well, mm-hmm. um, made a public apology. And, and, and it was directed at me to say, we are sorry for the ways that we have not been fully inclusive mm. of those individuals who may not have, you know, the language that mm-hmm. we have that may um, be biracial, right? Mm-hmm. And those we have, and that was a public apology. And I mean, I was, I mean, I started sobbing immediately. Mm-hmm. But but that reconciliation between peoples, between us as Latinx peoples, was so crucial for us to move forward and to be fully inclusive because we were we were fully inclusive of people who were non-binary in terms of gender who are LGBT. 
cute, like, Mm -hmm. you know, for us who are queer, but there was that other piece that was lacking in inclusion. And Mm -hmm. that reconciliation just moved everything forward in a way that um, has really been wonderful for us as who identify as Latinas, Latinos, Latinx, Latine, Mm -hmm. to come together fully. Yeah. And, you know, without that, I'm so glad you shared that because Encuentros Latinx is a legacy of that. And specifically, it's yes. a legacy of Ellie Mendez. Uh, this, yes. this was uh, it, it was a different name uh, before the, the name recently changed. But but this ministry, it, it, it is her legacy. She's the one who yes. started it originally. So, uh, you know, and, and I wouldn't have frankly, I wouldn't have been able, I wouldn't have been welcome in that either. Like if that old paradigm yeah. had, had stayed. And, yeah. you know, one thing I, I realized and I I've come to realize is that I was welcome. I mean, if, if I briefly split my main identities into three sections, uh, there were two sections that were always fed. And that was the, the, you know, the spiritual being a, a Christian with progressive values side of things and, uh, and, and being queer. Uh Those two were fed very well in the UCC. Yeah. And I didn't realize until I encountered, uh, Reverend Ellie's work the first time that the Latina part was so underfed and that it could be fed and that I was allowed to let it be fed. And it, it's just a different type of a different type of abundant life to go back to my like evangelical yes. language, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah, um, yeah so. absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, I, thinking about, you know, all of the different identities that we hold, you know, as, as someone who identifies as bisexual, you know, my own, my own coming out. And for me, that was of course fed in the UCC and, and felt that very presently, just learning about the UCC, my, my religious background growing up though was not, you know, I grew up Mm -hmm. as an evangelical Pentecostal. Both my parents grew up as Catholic. And when I was six months old, my dad uh, went to a Nikki Cruz outreach. And I I don't know if you know who Nikki Cruz is. He was a Mm -hmm. gangbanger, you know, back in the day. And he's, he's a kid from Puerto Rico, moved to the Bronx, you know, got into lots of trouble, was in and out of jail. And he had this conversion experience where he, you know, accepted Christ. And then he started doing these outreaches and these revivals. And my dad went to one in early 1980 when I was just a baby and he became saved. Right. So Mm -hmm. he grew up Catholic, then became this evangelical, um, you know, person and, and, and really, you know, his passion about his faith was sort of what inspired my own faith. And he, the way he lived his faith was never exclusionary in mm-hmm. any sort of way that, that I remember, that I recall. Um, but he embraced sort of the, the best parts of the Pentecostal evangelical, you know, the freedom of expression. He would dance and worship, which mm-hmm. I hated as a kid because I was so <laughs> embarrassed by, or he would speak in tongues and those sorts of things. And it was that passion, I think, that he, that he really embraced and, you know, and informed my own faith, but growing up in evangelical circles, you know, I never, I never sort of shared sort of anything about my growing sexual identity or anything like that. Um, but I never really saw it in conflict with my faith. Only when Mm -hmm. I got to college, did I really begin to see the ways that 
who I was in the fullness of my being was not welcome. I was part of an evangelical college group that I had joined. In a, and even at that point, they were not welcoming of women as leaders. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, if you're not even welcoming of me as a woman, there's no way you're going to be welcoming of me as a queer person. And mm-hmm. so, you know, just sort of making those larger realizations, which then led me to um, seminary and theology school where my whole world opened up. And I was like, this is, this is who I can fully express all of my identities and who mm-hmm. I am um, in that space. And I found the UCC in seminary, you know, after looking at and going to different churches, looking at different denominations, I said, the UCC is really the place where I want to be and have been a part of this denomination now for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've served in the national settings of the UCC, been a part of the early, you know, Council for Hispanic Ministries, now the Colectivo, and and just finding, you know, who I am and not that we don't have work to do as a denomination. Right. There's yeah. a lot of work to be done. Like, let me tell you, as someone who has worked at the innermost levels, the highest levels of this mm-hmm. denomination, we have a lot of work to do. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, being able to hold all of my identities and my expressions of who I am um, as a person of faith and, and understanding that faith, just like my own sexuality, my own spirituality is always in movement. It's always, you know, evolving. It's cyclical. It's, you know, these sorts of things are not fixed parts of who we are. Um, mm-hmm. Just as God is not a fixed entity, God in, is interacting with us in real time, in movement, spirit is interacting with us. And so these things are always in movement. And, and I just, I'm grateful for the UCC giving me a space as a minister, as a teacher, as a pastor to, to evolve, to move, to have breath, to have space, um, to live into all of my identities. Mm. And going, continuing on with this journey of faith and spirituality, you mentioned before that your spouse is Muslim. And Mm -hmm. so what is that interfaith experience like for you? And, and was that something that you had because, you know, I think a lot of people who grew up in a more evangelical type of type of environment, I mean, if you talk about an interfaith relationship, maybe it's okay with a Jewish person. That might be the only way that it could it could be right. okay. But with a with a Muslim person, oh my gosh! So what? So was there? By the time that you met your spouse, was, was there? Did you already like go through the? inner work with that? Or did you even have that framework in, in the way that you grew up? That's that sort of, uh, that prejudice that you had oh, to yeah. work through. Definitely. In the evangelical world, it, it, I mean, just marrying someone who was Muslim or who was unsaved, mm-hmm. you know, was a, was a huge no. And, and, you know, my mom, at, my mom at that point, I mean, she had become a lapsed Catholic and she never even considered herself Catholic most of my life. I think she was more, you know, atheist or, you know, sort of the spiritual, but not religious people, Mm -hmm. you know, toward the end of her life. And, and my brother had also come out, which was a huge sort of moment in our, in our family life. And so, you know, we, we became a family that was incredibly open and embracing. So in terms of my family, that was not an issue to have someone who was Muslim, like not Mm -hmm. even, 
not even not even something. And I did wonder. I was going through the ordination process um, when I met my spouse and what we when we married, and I got that question in my ecclesiastical council where you're being questioned, mm-hmm. you know, before you're being ordained, and and I was being called into a ministry that was working with college students at the time. So it was working with um, students of color, LGBTQ students, first generation students, and Jewish and Muslim students. And so mm-hmm. I was working with all of the minority student populations in in this small private liberal arts college. And so um, the question was asked of me, you know, how, you know, how will being married to a Muslim person you know, enhance your ministry. And I said, well, I am an interfaith, I'm I'm interfaith, right? I'm in an Mm -hmm. interfaith relationship. And it really only enhanced the work that I did at that time. I I do still get the question though, what is it like to be married to a Muslim? Like, Mm -hmm. what is that? Like, and it's Mm -hmm. just such a weird question. So it's, it's one of those, again, kind of microaggression questions where Mm -hmm. someone's like, so like, what are you really? Or how Mm -hmm. is it really like being married to a Muslim? And I, I say, well, how is it like being married to your spouse? Like, (laughs) it's the same thing. Like, we have the Mm -hmm. same challenges. We have the same sort of disagreements. You know, Mm -hmm. we learn to navigate life together, but our faith informs who we are. And we have, at the end of the day, sort of the basic same political progressive Mm -hmm. beliefs and understandings. But we negotiate those things just like we would negotiate, you know, a Presbyterian person marrying a Methodist or, you know, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And so um, I, I think, again, it's just sort of, I see myself in this way of always navigating between worlds, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm in an interfaith marriage. I navigate those worlds. I am, you know, biracial, right? I mm-hmm. navigate different worlds, different cultures. I grew up in a context that was not my own ethnically. Mm-hmm. I navigate that. I'm bisexual, right? Mm-hmm. I navigate that. But yet I have privilege of a heterosexual person. Mm-hmm. And so I always name that. So I have been, I've been married to a straight man for 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. And so having to acknowledge that, but yet owning the part of myself that is queer, you know, mm-hmm. and, and naming that out loud and saying, you know, I have privilege mm-hmm. because of my heterosexual marriage mm-hmm. to someone. So um, all of those, <laughs> all of those identities really begin to shape who I am, but it also gives me this unique perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, on being in the betwixt and the between, you know, and mm-hmm. I think of Gloria Anzaldúa's, you know, this bridge, you know, um, being a bridge between worlds. And she talks about that. And that metaphor is really powerful because I think so many of us in diaspora or, you know, being growing up in one culture, being in a new culture, um, growing up in a particular faith and moving away from that faith mm-hmm. into a more progressive fullness of who we are, those in those ways we become bridges right mm-hmm. and so we traverse two different worlds and we become the connectors of those worlds so mm-hmm. not ever really leaving behind what we have known and stepping into something new but we still maintain those ties to those to those different worlds or different identities that we hold and um that is a, not a good place to be uh, bridges mm-hmm. bear a lot of weight mm-hmm. And bridges get trampled on sometimes Mm -hmm. and people don't often understand the purpose of bridges, right? Or, or, you know, bridges get abused. They bear a lot. And, and how does one be a bridge in the world and own that identity? And at the same time, not 
get that shame or get trampled on um, or get overused in that space as well is such a, a delicate tension and balance mm-hmm. um, that many of us have to deal with and have to navigate. Mm. What What is something from your husband's faith, like a particularly salient theological um, truth or, or insight that really jives with your Christianity? Oof. Yeah. I know that's, that's a big question, but just talking about the, the better side of, of bridges, you know? uh, Yeah. There's something about Islam that I find so beautiful and, and it has to do with the practice the praxis element. And in Christianity, I think we, we minimize, um, particularly, you know, white European Christianity, we minimize the importance of practice and, and the body in relationship to Mm. our faith. And, you know, the practice of fasting during Ramadan is Mm. a difficult practice, but it's a beautiful one. And, you know, having watched my spouse go through that, um, you know, it's, it's, and even going to prayer, you know, going mm-hmm. to um, the mosque, going to Juman Fridays, mm-hmm. or, you know, praying five times a day, th- those are acts of bodily um, ritual and devotion that Christianity doesn't quite have in the same way, you know, Mm. in the washing of hands before prayer. And so that embodied aspect of the faith is something that is quite intriguing and beautiful to me. Um, And I wish that our sort of intellectual westernized Christianity had more inclusion of who we are as bodies Mm. and, and had those bodily practices, you know, we Mm -hmm. have uh, communion, we have baptism, but those, those elements, I I wish we could have more of um, Mm. in our faith and our tradition. The other piece, and again, part of this embodied theme is that, um, you know, there, particularly in, in Ali's world growing up, you know, if someone was hungry and needed food during Ramadan or needed to break fast, they would knock on your door and say, I need, to, I need food or I want to mm. come in. And, and you would have to feed them. Mm. Um, and, and again, that embodied aspect of practicing um, community, practicing justice, that people need to be fed and that it is your duty as a Muslim to feed them. If someone mm. is hungry, you have to feed them. Mm. Um, we say those things in Christianity. I don't think we embody them in quite the same way. We don't take them as literally. Mm-hmm. And I, I, those are things that I hugely value, um, mm. not only as values for my spouse, but values from the faith that he um, comes from and that he mm-hmm. embodies. And I remember early on in our relationship, I came home one day, I went to church and I came home and I was like, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. I think I'm half Christian and half Muslim. And I remember I was just really torn up about it. And he was uh-huh. like, "Why are you talking about?" Um, but in some ways, it's it's you know, I am a Christian and I have this deep faith, but it's not just relegated to Christianity. It's mm. 
it's it's much bigger than that. Um, it's much bigger than the structures and the boxes that we've placed on, particularly Western Euro Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, spirit is much more alive and um, in movement than we give her or them credit for. Mm. Um, and so just being open to those possibilities, I think, has really opened up my own faith journey in ways that I couldn't have imagined not being in the relationship that I'm in. Awesome. Man, I could go on a, we could go on a whole other talk with that because I I find all of that stuff super fascinating. And then as you were speaking at the end, I'm thinking about Rumi, who's like my, currently one of my biggest exposures to, um, you know, any sort of mysticism outside of Christianity. And the main reason why I've read Rumi's work is because my favorite band in the world, Me Without You, quotes Rumi in a lot of their music because the the front man and his brother, who are who's also in the band, they grew up in a very mixed household. They hmm. they are uh, their their mother. I think what what was it? Their mother was Jewish, but she converted to Sufi Islam. Wow. Um, and so they grew up uh, in, in that, like with that whole mixture. So there is just, if you want to, if you want to get some really fascinating, uh, obscure theological, spiritual, literary ideas, I mean, listen to me without you read the lyrics and pick apart the references they make, because I don't know of any other band that, that, makes the kind of reference like any theology nerd needs to listen to this band so but yeah, i will it, definitely check them out oh they're so good i i can send you uh i i can send you some songs to get started on um and i will do that because this band is amazing um oh i love that that's awesome so what work are you doing right now what is your day-to-day grind that you're doing in the world yeah, so um, so I am uh, on the faculty at ILIF School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. Uh, ILIF is a seminary related with the United Methodist Church. Very progressive. Um, I, myself, an alum of ILIF. I graduated with my Master of Divinity degree in 2006. And um, I've been on the faculty now for three years, and I have several different roles that I play. My primary role is director of the Office of Professional Formation. So I oversee all of the uh, contextual education, field education that students do for their degree requirements. So their internships, their working in churches, working at nonprofits. Um, I, I oversee all of that work and hiring the adjuncts that, that teach those seminar classes. I also teach, I'm a term assistant professor of leadership and formation. So I teach courses on leadership uh, mainly. So I teach parish leadership, congregational development. I teach a course that I developed uh, last year called Decolonizing Congregational Leadership. And we look at sort of our own praxis, but yet looking at, you know, different theorists and theologians and practical theologians about how they decolonize and work to decolonize um, their own identities, but also the their congregations as well and, and the symbols they use and the work that they do. So that's been a great class to teach. I also teach courses on research methods for our doctoral students, and I teach a community organizing course as well, looking at sort of 
community formation, organizing, advocacy, nonprofit work. So that's those are a couple of the hats I wear. I also um, co-direct our Doctor of Ministry program in prophetic leadership, helping students to uh, think more deeply about what prophetic leadership is and how they live that out in their context. And then I also coordinate the Latinx Studies certificate for our joint PhD program. And so I get to work with our students who are taking that certificate as an additional uh, development piece of their doctoral studies, uh, their PhD studies. So a lot of different hats. And I really mm-hmm. love that work. It's it's teaching, it's administration, it's uh, talking with students about their own vocations and identities and how that's being formed in their experiences uh, and, and love, truly love that work in a place that is fully welcoming and embracing. Uh, about a third of our students are LGBTQ or identify um, beyond the gender binary, and that's really life-giving. It's a lot of our students are also sort of um, coming from similar places that I did as an evangelical, you know, leaving evangelicalism behind, you know, because of their sexuality or, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of moving away from that. And so they say, well, where do I go from here? Like, I, mm-hmm. what, like, who am I and how do I understand my faith differently? And so it's, it's exciting to be a part of that journey with students um, and, and particularly students of color who have come, who are coming from multiple you know, different identities and learning how to live into those identities more fully as ministers and leaders. So that's a little bit of the work I, I do currently. And, mm-hmm. and of course, I'm a minister in the United Church of Christ. I, I formerly worked um, for the national setting as the director of research and data, the Center mm-hmm. for Analytics, Research and Data for the United Church of Christ, did that for several years, worked with Christian Faith Formation for two years in the national setting and have worked in higher ed. So that's just a little bit of the work I'm doing now. And I'm doing mm-hmm. some writing and research around post-colonial, decolonial theory. Um, I'm going to be writing a chapter this summer on um, disaster capitalism in mm. Puerto Rico oh and gosh, how yeah. how that has sort of decimated and, and caused uh, another sorts of mini migrations to the mainland of the mm-hmm. United States mm-hmm. um, and how corporations have capitalized on that and are corporatizing parts of Puerto Rico as a result. So I'm writing a chapter um, for a book that'll be published probably next year sometime. Uh, Miguel de la Torre is the editor, and he's one of my colleagues here at ILIF, uh, oh. prolific Latinx scholar and writer. So I'll be um, working on that project that he is leading. So yeah, a wow. lot of stuff. There were, there were like five things you just said that uh, that excited me. Number one, um, the when you, this chapter that you're writing just reminds me of this book that I just finished reading. It's called Aftershocks of Disaster. Maybe, yes. you, yeah, maybe you're even Naomi familiar Klein. with it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I, I just finished reading that a couple of weeks ago and it took me a long time to, to get through the, the book. Um, but like the second you said disaster capitalism, I'm like, oh my gosh, I was just reading about this. So Uh, yeah, absolutely. And then you said, um, you said Miguel de la Torre. Um, Mm -hmm. I have his book right here. Uh, this is him, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, He's, he's written and edited 34 books so far and he's got like five more coming out this year. I don't even know. He's yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me uh, say it for those who are not benefiting from the video feed. The the book is that I was just holding up is a liberation theology for armchair theologians and it has illustrations and everything for it. And this book, it's in a, 
the cheeky title is because there's actually a whole series of such and such for armchair whoever is like that's kind of the whole uh book series but it's a short book and it's a great introduction to liberation theology um it, it just explains what it is where it came from and, and actually i mean really i should say liberation theologies or liberative theologies mm-hmm. that's actually the language he uses in his book um so yeah, <laughs> yeah he's yeah he's he's incredible and yeah he just had a book come out um through pilgrim press um on because he directs our center for eco justice um and so each year we do a conference based on different things and this year's is migration Mm-hmm. And, you know, environmental racism. And last year, I, I can't remember. It was water. It was water. So he mm-hmm. just released an edited book, Going to Trouble the Water, through Pilgrim Press. And there's a, and so it's an edited book with a lot of chapters around water and, and environmental racism. This, this next book is around um, immigration and migration mm-hmm. and environmental racism. So, yeah, he's, he is a fantastic human being. And the, the Naomi Klein book that you referenced, so that she wrote a little, a very little book, called the battle for paradise it's Mm -hmm. puerto rico takes on disaster capitalism and Mm. um yeah so a a really key book but oh my gosh miguel is amazing and um there are three of us who are latinx scholars at island school of theology the third is albert hernandez and he's our um professor of uh, early christian history he was the dean he was the interim president for a while so i'm i'm really grateful because these are also the scholars who have taught me uh, mm-hmm. as an MDiv student at ILIF, and now I'm their colleague. And so I feel very blessed and very lucky to be working with, with each of these colleagues at ILIF. We are a unique faculty. I think half of our, half of our faculty are people of color, mm-hmm. um, which is not common for theological schools mm-hmm. in the United States. I think mm-hmm. um, particularly Protestant you know, progressive theological schools, having half of our faculty be people of color has been a real joy and a blessing um, mm-hmm. to learn from my Korean colleagues, my African-American colleagues. Um, we also have one of the foremost Native American uh, theologians in the world, Tink Tinker, and he mm-hmm. is a professor emerita, and he also taught me um, uh, when I was a student at ILIF, and now he teaches sometimes still um, as our professor emeritus. So yeah, it's a great place to be just blessed to be there. And yeah, if anyone is thinking about seminary, I'd be happy to talk with you (laughs) about ILIF being a possibility. We have students all over the country and, you know, we do mostly online hybrid stuff. So yeah. Um, and another thing you mentioned about your, your work with card, um, yes. And so the, you're familiar with the the statistics and demographics of yeah. the UCC. And so one of the one of the things that we often talk about in Encuentros Latinx meetings is just how overwhelmingly white the UCC is, even compared to other Protestant denominations. And you can correct me if if I'm if I'm mistaken about about that, but I think I think we're the number of white people in the UCC is like even higher than, than like Methodist or, or some, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. than, than others. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because um, yeah, we, we are incredibly white. We've become less white, I think over the last decade. Um, but again, we're still very, very, you know, majority Euro-American denomination Methodists 
are much more diverse. Um, and and they're and Methodism is a global, the United Methodist Church is a global mm-hmm. denomination as well, which mm-hmm. I think contributes to that. But but our history and our roots as, you know, pilgrims, you know, Euro-American mm-hmm. settlers that came to this land and settled on on indigenous soil um is still with us to this very day. And mm-hmm. What I find fascinating, however, is that those who are becoming ministers, those who are members in discernment in the United Church of Christ, are like, like I think at least half people of color, if not more. And so those who are coming into leadership are majority people of color, certainly majority LGBTQ folks, like definitely, and are people that are not, did not grow up in the United Church of Christ. And mm-hmm. so I think as this wave of membranes in discernment over the last decade continues to come into the UCC and take those leadership roles um, at a much faster rate than ever before in the UCC's history, uh, it has a potential to really shape the denomination moving forward. Uh, and I think there are still um, we again, we still have a long way to go. Patriarchy is huge um, in the United Church of Christ. Still, um, white privilege, white supremacy, all of those things sort of it, are imbued in the foundations of our, of our denomination and are really difficult to get rid of. But I see, I see progress in those ways. But even still, we <laughs> we are definitely. Um, a work in progress, but it is beautiful to see the ways that new expressions of our faith and expressions of our faith that, um, again, you know, as Latinx people continues to be a presence in the United Church of Christ, we are the gift to the denomination as a whole and, and being understood as the gift and um, equal partners and leaders in the denomination is critical for us to really move forward. Hmm. And was part of your work with CARD, because I, I have a memory of that, of that there was some work done to try to find where, number one, the Latinx denominations in the UCC, and number two, like how many Latinx people were going to churches. Was that something, is that something that you know about more? Yeah. The, the Colectivo um, underwent a large survey project and then wrote a report based on their findings, just on uh, Latinx in people in the UCC. What, Mm -hmm. who are we, where are we? Mm -hmm. um, What are our backgrounds? um, That sort of thing. And so I was uh, at, at the time I was the director and I helped to provide some shape to that project. So we looked at the the survey, we gave feedback. Uh, One of the people on the team at CARD um, worked to input that into, I think, SurveyMonkey. Um, We had a Spanish version and an English version. Um, And then we helped do some analysis around that and and writing of the report around that. So yeah, our, um, our team at the time helped support that entire project, but it was led mostly by the Colectivo. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, just a great, incredible project. And I also did um, other kinds of analyses over the UCC as a whole around um, sort of the pay inequity inequities uh, around gender and around race in terms mm-hmm. of how our ministers are paid and who has full-time appointments, who has part-time 
calls, that that sort of thing. And so um, really tried to highlight some of those challenges that we still face in the UCC mm-hmm. because statistics can help us hold a mirror up to ourselves and then say, we need to do better. How can we begin to make change? And so I, mm-hmm. I really viewed my work in that role as, as pastoral work and as prophetic work at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it's, I'm glad that you were involved in, in that work and that we can, there's a reason to bring it up on, on the podcast, because I, I think the, the findings of that survey kind of showed, you know, a small number and a scattered experience. Yes. Um, and, and I think that could be why it, it took from when I first joined the UCC, like the first day I walked into my local congregation, that was 2013. And it huh. took until 2017 before I encountered, um, Reverend Ellie and the work that mm-hmm. she was doing. So there was just a huge, a, a huge gap. And also at, at the same time, I was just barely dealing with undoing my own super assimilation stuff that I talked about before. So it's like, it was like, it was like, I wouldn't have even thought to seek it out if Reverend Ellie and her work didn't like literally come into my literal church. Yes. It just, it, it, it just wouldn't, have, wouldn't have happened at all. And so and so I think yeah. that that gap, that scattering and that smallness is part of the reason why Encuentros Latinx and Colectivo have have sprung up and and, you know, why we are doing the, the work that we're doing, just trying to get our people together and then to, to figure out because this is such a big question for me since I was so assimilated and I, and I can walk into any white Euro congregation and be like, oh, hell hell yeah, they're playing the organ music. They're playing the good hymns on the organ music. I love, I love that. Cause I, I do, I, yeah. I do, I do enjoy that. Um, and yeah. you know, I can, I can be, I can flow very well with all of that. And so a big question that we're dealing with at Encuentros Latinx, and I'm sure, you know, many others are asking is like, what, what does it, practically look like to have a church that is inclusive, inclusive, intentionally inclusive of Latinx people. What does that mean? Like when when, when I think about that on on an individual level, like, you know, I, I can't, if I were to have this conversation with my people in, in my church, it would be like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean bilingual services? Well, but I'm, if, if it's talking right. about like what I'm saying as, as one of the only, I'm, I'm the only active Latina that I know of that is currently going to my church. Well, Spanish isn't my first language. And so, right. you know, if, if we're going to use like, oh, to be inclusive of Latinx means bilingual service that like, you know, um, that, and then that gets, is that, does that really, is that really what it means? Does it, does it mean mm-hmm. using, using different kinds of of music. And then it's like, well, you know, but, but I'm fine with the hymns, you know, it's just, it's just this like weird, it's this weird thing to, to deal with. Like, I want to know what a, what a Latinx UCC church is because I haven't been to one. I've gotten taste of that through work that Encuentros, Encuentros Latinx has done. Yes. But it's, and it's something that I know that I need, but I still have no concept of how to, convey that to our 90, 85% white 
denomination, but, you know? Well, yeah. So what do you I, think about that? Yeah. I mean, it, it's such a, it's such an important question. And I, and I think it, what's, what the survey showed and what you point to is that most of us who are Latinx in the United Church of Christ are not in Latinx churches, mm-hmm. right? And there are not that many Latinx churches in the UCC. And so, you know, those who who are, you know, are pastoring those churches um, have started churches with, with, you know, with Latinx ministries and peoples um, are few and far between in the denomination. So how do we create spaces for, you know, uh, Latinx to be who we are in these majority white congregations, which they mostly are. And, and we're in, you know, white congregations. We're in African-American congregations as well. Um, we're in some Asian-American Pacific Islander, you know, Samoan congregations. Mm-hmm. Um, where where are we and how do we come together? And I think that's an important question because it's a question of, of culture and how do we how do we, you know, assimilate, but then how do we maintain aspects of our identity and our culture while being a part of these majority, you know, other racial denomination kind or other racial group congregations? It's a tough mm-hmm. question. I don't mm-hmm. think I have any, have any answers for it, but, but I think groups like Encuentros and um, El Colectivo, um, the UCC Latinx Ministries is just is a part of the answer because that's a way that we can gather together in times and spaces and even virtually to have comunidad with one another and to learn about who we are in one another. And I don't think we in the UCC have done that very well in the past. And I think we need to do a better job of that moving forward because in some ways, my relationships with those people who live across the country are the relationships that sustain me in the United Church of Christ. And I think that's what's mm-hmm. been difficult about this pandemic. And even having synod virtually, I don't get to go someplace and see my people, right? I don't get mm-hmm. to spend time with my people. And those are the times that really enrich me with my with people that I know and love in the UCC who are Latinx and who feed my soul. I mean, some of the best times I have ever had has been with people late at night, having drinks, laughing and talking. And and that's mm-hmm. been, that's been what sustains us. Comunidad is what sustains us at the end of the day. And how do we, how do we do that is, is difficult. The survey also showed that People that are serving in their context, whether locally or even with their conferences, are very lonely and isolated and needing that sense of community. So I think Mm -hmm. it's important now more than ever, we find ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And and especially as a way to resist colonization, mm-hmm. um, resist Western capitalist notions of individual rugged individualism, which is, mm-hmm. you know, rampant. We need one another. We need one another to survive. We need comunidad. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I certainly do. And if this last year and a half has taught us anything, it's that we need each other more than ever. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and you know, I I also think that things like Encuentros Latinx and Colectivo, it's so important to, to reach those everyday people just coming to church each week who are also in diaspora and mm-hmm. maybe needing or yearning to do reconnection work yeah. because 
once I started getting more involved in this work that I'm doing, I felt more fed in in this identity that needed that needed love and it needed to be affirmed. Yes. And you know, and and continuing to make the make our existence known uh, uh-huh. as these organizations because if you're so deep in in the cutoff section of of diaspora where you don't even know you need it because you've never even encountered it so it doesn't enter your mind yeah then you know how how many others are there who have a similar experience to us who don't know that Encuentros Latinx is something they could connect with or don't know that Colectivo is something they could connect with don't know that that the Latinx community in the UCC, like, yes, it actually also means you, despite how you invalidate yourself because of the litmus yes. tests that you've been, that you've internalized over your life. And, yeah, uh, and it's like, and it's such a catch 22 as well, because, you know, who listens to this podcast are the, are the same like 12 people I, I see the hits and I love the same 12 people the same 12 people y'all can send me emails and leave and leave <laughs> yeah. comments and I'll read them on the show uh you know but aside from the the first episode that that got published it, it there was a brief article about it on the national news website and there was some you know people who seem really excited about it but I haven't heard a peep from them yeah. since um and yeah. you know I I don't mean that in any type of bitter way necessarily, but just pointing out that like, you know, what do people actually care about the Latinx voice and the denomination, I guess is what I'm, what I'm asking. Yeah. And you know, that's a good question. I don't know. (laughs) The answer answer is, I don't know. And and I think this is where the work happens, you know, there. um, And I would say if I, if I did not get involved at a national level, Mm-hmm. Early on in the UCC, I don't think I'd still be UCC to this day. Mm. Um, and it was because of Reverend Linda Jaramillo, who was the executive minister of Justice and Witness Ministries at the time, who fought with my conference minister for me to be on the board of the Justice and Witness Ministries as a representative from my conference. Mm-hmm. Um, if it were not for that, I don't think I would still be a member of the UCC. I mean, I might be, but I might be just really disconnected and not Mm -hmm. even, you know, active in any sort of space. But Mm -hmm. it was because of that forming relationship and that, that she believed in me and wanted me to be on the board that I then got access to this wider network of people Mm -hmm. throughout the UCC. And that's Mm -hmm. how I, you know, then I became on staff at, you Mm -hmm. know, at the UCC and, you know, as a delegate to Synod Mm -hmm. and without that, that sense of connection, I would not have remained in the UCC. And I, I have, I've seen some ugly things in the UCC. And when Linda left her role, um, with, JWM and, and retired, you know, I then became the the highest, you know, ranking Latina in the United Church of Christ National Offices. And, mm. and I don't think anyone, and I still had people say to me, oh, I didn't know you were a Latina. Mm. Yep. <laughs> like, yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, and, and again, it, I think it took me even to be at that level for people to recognize and accept me within the Council of Hispanic Ministries as well, mm-hmm. because then they saw I had access to power. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And we're like, oh, we need her on our side. And so there was a lot of ugly sort of internal, Mm -hmm. internal politics that happened at that time. And, but overall, I mean, the way I've seen progress and that's what I'll say, I've seen Mm -hmm. progress in the national setting, but I do think we have a long way to go. And I don't know if Latinx voices are fully embraced or welcomed by the UCC as a, as a whole, but it's mm-hmm. to the loss and the detriment of the white majority who do not mm-hmm. see that as an expression. I mean, and, I, and as a part socius, sociologist of religion who has studied religious trends and the decline of mainline denominationalism mm-hmm. for years and years and years now, the it, it is too their need to be able Mm -hmm. to begin to see these kinds of of different expressions of the united church of christ to say this is how we become a better more diverse and perhaps even growing part of the united church of christ but it's Mm -hmm. it's incumbent upon uh i think euro americans abilities to be open to check their privilege, to understand that privilege, and to see the ways that it plays out explicitly and implicitly and -hmm. begin to change those ways of doing and being that then can open up spaces for those of us who are people of color, queer people, to really have central power and shared power and um, be able to make change Mm -hmm. to the denomination. Yeah, absolutely. And and I really honed in to what you said about how if you didn't get in on some of these higher levels that eventually led you to national that you still wouldn't be here because I, I sort of had a similar experience. There, there was somebody in my local uh, congregation at the time. His name is Alex Vicio. I don't know if you know him at all, but uh, he he's done so much work in the Central Atlantic Conference uh, when he was still with us. And he, and he was a part yeah. of uh, of my church, but he, he moved, he's in Texas now, uh, pursuing his PhD. So, but, uh, he was the one who said, who said, Taylor, I think you should serve on consistory. And I'm like, I came from evangelical non-denominational. I'm like, what the heck is a consistory? I don't know what that is, but okay. It sounds fun. <laughs> and yeah. so, and then from there, I think you should, he said, you know, I think you should be a, a, a delegate for the, to the, uh, Central Atlantic Conference or, or uh-huh. what was it? It was, so I've been, I've been a delegate to the association, to the conference and to general synod. Like I've hit all nice. three levels. And a lot of that started because, because Alex said, I think you should do this. And most of the time, like I had no idea how the UCC actually structured or, you know, or how it worked, but, uh, it was just simply Alex saying, you know, I think I'm, I'm going to nominate you for this. And his, he nominated me for the board of directors. And so I'm on the board of like, you That's know, awesome. and part, part of it is like for a lot of it, it, you know, was a little bit of this tokenism. I, I am 30 years old right now. Um, so right. for a lot of this time, it was like, oh, we have the under 30. We really got to make sure we have like, you know how how that goes. But yep. if what I'm getting at, though, is because I was involved in those, you know, sort of levels beyond just the simple local congregation, then I learned about things like Colectivo and, the, and these these more like national uh-huh. ministries and, uh, you know, and, and ONA and, you know, the, these yep. people in different parts uh, of the church and serving at, at national levels, which, I mean, I think it's the fun stuff, you know, yeah. it's, it's so much fun, uh, you know, having all of those connections and, and speaking with all of those people. 
but if, yeah. if I didn't have, like you said, if I didn't have that one person and which, which just speaks to like, there's all this, you know, for lack of better terms, there's all this fun stuff on the national level mm-hmm. that just doesn't seem to get communicated to the average person going to a local church, which is a whole issue that, that right, everybody right. has. I mean, this would, this podcast would be another like three hours if, you know, if we started <laughs> right. getting into the, the disconnect between the local church and, and, and the national setting. But, um, I want to I want to make sure that that people know um, where they can keep up with you, like on social media or certain, you know, websites for different work that you're doing, whatever it is. Where can people find you and your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm mostly on Facebook and Instagram. So um, Kayla Zardy Hajby, K-L-I-Z-A-R-D-Y Hajby, H-A-J-B-I. Um, is my Facebook page. And I think that's my Instagram as well. I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it very often. So I usually post articles I write there, um, you know, different things I do. And I also have this weird thing. My spouse and I love guinea pigs and we, we have guinea pigs as our sort of fur baby children. So I always post a happy Friday guinea pig picture of a guinea pig doing something fun. So you'll get to see that if you're on Facebook or Instagram. Um, and uh, also you can go to ilift.edu um, and search for faculty. And I have a faculty page and sometimes my stuff I'll post there, uh, just some articles and different things that I'm doing. So yeah, I, I would love to, you know, if anybody is interested in, you know, having a dialogue or wants to talk or talk more about anything we've talked about. I'm happy for them to reach out and hopefully we'll get more than 12 people (laughs) to listen to the podcast and have a broader reach, not only in the UCC, but beyond that as well, because I think the conversations you're raising and the, the topics you're raising here are really important, not just for people within our denomination, but beyond. And just someone having a voice to say, you know, I can be a person of faith, I can be queer, and I am Latina, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, those things can coexist, and they do. And it's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Any parting words of affirmation for our queer Latinx folks? Oh, wow. I don't think I have any, any true wisdom to offer. Um, I, I think for those of us who are just in the day to day of the work and the life that we're living to just continue to be, um, rooted in the sense of who we are and the sense of who God and spirit has created us to be. And to remember that no matter what others, uh, may place on you, no matter what, uh, identities or constructions or judgments other others may place on you. Um, be who you are, and who you are is holy and beautiful, and a gift from the sacred. May it be so, Christina. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. What a fantastic, fantastic episode! Yes, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. On behalf of Encuentros Latinx, we hope you'll join us on our next Encuentro.